Open up your Bibles. John chapter 4. I really, I, you know, you guys know preachers are talkers. Um, but I am particularly talkative today. This passage of Scripture, there's so much here. There's so much here. And I'm going to do the best I can to stay on task. But we're going to do the woman at the well part two. If you weren't here last week or you didn't, you didn't get a chance to listen to the sermon, all you have to do is jump on the Brandywine Grace podcast and you can listen to the woman at the well part one. There's a different title. I think it was the beneficiaries of God's incredible grace today. A very creative title, the woman at the well part two. That's, that's what we're going to do today. That's what we're going to focus. But we're in John chapter four. And we read a good portion of the story last week. We're going to finish the story this week. Last week I actually read through verse, I think verse 30. I want to back up though so that you get the context. We're going to back up to verse 16 and read all the way through 40, verse 42. Now this is where I need my prop. I'm going to try to set this here. Most of you probably watched the Super Bowl last week. How many of you watched it? Yeah, see, everybody watched the Super Bowl. The two best teams in the NFL play for the coveted, does anybody know the name of the trophy? The Lombardi Trophy, named after Vince Lombardi, famous coach for the Green Bay Packers. That's what he was, he was famous for coaching them. Back in 1961, they began their season and they had suffered a devastating loss. In the Super Bowl, what was then known as the, the NFL Championship, they suffered a devastating loss to none other than, check this guys, do you know who it was they lost to? The Philadelphia Eagles. So we haven't had a lot of those. But Vince Lombardi and 38 members of the Green Bay Packers football team arrived in the, in the uh, summer of 1961 to begin a new season, having suffered a horrible loss. They had been leading through that game, but lost it in the end. This was a new season, however, and all the players were showing up with new expectations for what this season was hold, would hold. They were looking for new techniques. They were looking for new plays. They were looking for new ideas that would take them once again to the height of the NFL, only this time they would win. How surprised they must have been when their head coach came in with a different idea. In the book, When Pride Still Mattered, The Life of Vince Lombardi, David Moranis, the author, recounts this. Vince Lombardi took nothing for granted. On that day, beginning their season, he began a tradition of starting from scratch. Assuming that the players were blank slates. Who carried over no knowledge from the year before. He began with the most elemental statement of all. He walked into that season, he looked at those professional football players, and he said, gentlemen, this is a football. 
Sometimes we need to be reminded of the fundamentals. Sometimes we need to restate the obvious. He was highlighting the importance of the fundamentals because he knew that we all have this tendency to be attracted to shiny new things. They thought that their key to winning would be new playbook, new technique, new strategies. And what their head coach was reminding them of is there's some basic fundamentals. And that's where we're going to start before we head to the shiny new things. He knew that if they didn't have the fundamentals down pat, they would never reach the Super Bowl again and would never win it. I think as Christians, this can be true for us as well. We can tend to be wowed by new and shiny things. We read some of the old fundamental truths of the gospel and we're just not wowed by them. We're just not amazed about Jesus and all that he's done to save sinners. So we can read a text like this and not see, not read it with the eyes that we should, and actually be astounded at the fundamental truth that the Bible all holds together with, that Jesus is a Savior for sinners. When we read today, I want us to be thinking about a question that was in John's mind when he wrote it. He wanted you and us as readers, to be asking this question, who is Jesus? And not only, who is he, not only who he is, but what did he come to do? Who is Jesus and what did he come to do? That's what this story highlights. I want us to read it with a willingness to allow the freshness of the story to amaze us at the astounding yet fundamental, basic, if you've been a Christian for a while, truths that you've heard before. Let's read it with this question, who is Jesus? Because that's the question John is answering with this story. Let's pick it up in verse 16 and we'll read through verse 42. So it's a, it's a long section. Jesus said to her, remember he's met the woman at the well. Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Good deduction. Then the deflection. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. 
God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. John says he is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, it's one of these fundamental truths that we pass over in our Bible reading. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar. That's supposed to get your attention. That's what she was there for. And went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Remember, Jesus was tired, he was thirsty, and he was hungry. So they said they brought food back because they were sent for food. Rabbi, eat. He said to him, I have food to eat that you don't know about. So the disciples said to, know, said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. I'm not going to get into a lot of that, but go home and think on that sentence. Sowers and reapers don't typically rejoice together. It's a very different time frame. With Jesus, sowers and reapers are rejoicing together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said we believe. For we've heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts to see truth. And that you would help us to just be wowed by what we see in this description that answers the question, who is Jesus and what has he done? Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, remember in this story, Jesus is breaking all sorts of social taboos. Social rules here that Jesus is not following. The first of which is that he went through Samaria. Jews would have typically gone around. He's talking to a woman. To no no. Not only is he talking to a woman, she's an uneducated woman and she's an immoral woman. Jesus is making himself religiously and ceremonially unclean. He's even asked her for a drink of water. 
as if he would use the very utensils that she's touched, which Jews would never do. So let's keep that in mind. The story has this shocking element to it that we pass over. We don't see it when we read it, but it, ha- it would have shocked first century Christians. It would have shocked those who were witnessing what was taking place. He says, when he says to her, give me a drink of water, that would have been the part of the story when people would have said, what? No way. No way. And she's just as shocked. That's why her response is, how is it that you, a Jew, Ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink of water. What this is pressing here, what John is doing it, and he's doing it brilliantly through story, is he's asking the question, who is Jesus? That's what's happening through this entire story. The identity of Jesus is slowly being peeled back, slowly being revealed. But it starts with this shocking interaction and this shocking request and the woman saying, how can you do this? It's almost like saying, who are you? Like, who is this? They're they're there by themselves, but it's almost like she would say, who the heck is this guy? It's a Jewish man asking me for a drink of water. Who is this? That's what we should be asking. Jesus says... What's he say? If you knew who. This, he's, he, John is seeking to identify who it is that she's talking to. If you knew who it was that asked you for a drink of water, you would have asked him for a drink of living water. So do you see what's happening here? The, the identity of Jesus is being revealed very, very creatively. By John. Now she eventually says, Sir, give me this water so that I won't be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now you remember last week I told you that this isn't like her desiring to be saved now. This isn't her. All Everything's not connecting yet for her. What she wants, if he could give her something that would allow her to not have to come to the well anymore and be embarrassed and experience shame and experience guilt and not have to deal with this this circumstance of her life and the shame that it brings upon her and the loneliness and the embarrassment that she feels, then yes, give me anything that would take that from me that would remove this circumstance from my life. Then Jesus says, go get your husband. She says, I have no husband. And Jesus says, you're right. You've had five. And the one that you're sleeping with now isn't even your husband. Imagine the shock you would feel if a complete stranger began to reveal knowledge 
detailed knowledge of your past and not just any old thing about your past, the things that you would be the most ashamed of anyone knowing or hearing. Imagine. So this woman knows that this guy is not normal. So she says, I, I perceive something going on here. I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, she didn't mean in a prophet like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. Because Samaritans didn't even believe that that section of Scripture was really God's Word. They only read and believed in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. So when she says, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet, she had none of those other people in mind. She did have someone in mind. The prophet of the Pentateuch, of the first five books of the Bible, is Moses. And do you remember in Deuteronomy 18, maybe you know this part of the story, where Moses actually says that they should be looking, that God's going to send another prophet like himself. So there's a good chance that this woman is having such a strange day that she begins to think that the person that she's talking to is so like outlandishly weird. And the things that he's saying and the things that he's doing, that he might actually be the prophet that Moses spoke of. She says in verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming. John says he who is called Christ. And then Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. Jesus reveals himself. Now I want you to know, this isn't the, the end of the identity problem we have here. She still doesn't get it. But when Jesus says, I who speak to you am he, the reader should recognize that this is one of many statements that John will make in this gospel. They're called the I am statements. This is very like this. He doesn't quite come out and say, I am. But he says, I who speak to you am he. It's reminiscent of something that, that God said to Moses. Tell them the great what? Church, do you know what he says? How well do you know your Bibles? The great I am. This is connected to Moses. And it's connected to Jesus when he says seven times in the Gospel of John, I am. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. I who speak to you 
am he. But she's still unsure of his identity. Because she runs off and says, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be? Can this be? She's still not sure. Can this be the Christ? Now, you have likely passed over something. You have likely passed over the fact that she didn't want anything to do with those people back at town. That's why she was there at noon. She has this encounter with the one she thinks could be Jesus. She forgets her water, which is what she was there for, runs back to town to tell them about this person that she thinks might be the Messiah. The love of Jesus changes everything. The love of Jesus changes everything. Now here comes the punchline. We're going to skip over his interaction with the disciples for a minute. And we're going to look at verse 39. Because we're going to see the reaction of the Samaritans. Now remember, this is the Samaritans, guys. These are not the ones that you would think Jesus would reveal himself to. Many Samaritans from that town, because of her witness, believed in him. Because of her testimony. He told me all that I ever did. The Samaritans came to him. They asked him to stay with him. He stays two days. Many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know. Look at what they are going to say here. John puts the identification of Jesus in the mouths of Samaritans. You're not feeling it the way you should. What do they say? We know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. It's just basic. It's just fundamental. Friends, have you forgotten the most basic, fundamental truth of the Bible is that Jesus is the Son of God who came to save sinners. Jesus, the Son of God who came to save sinners. Jesus, the Son of God who came to save sinners like the woman at the well, like the Samaritans, like Nicodemus, people that didn't feel like they, people that felt like they were beyond the need of God's grace, people that feel like they're beyond the reach of God's grace. Jesus is the Son of God who came to save real sinners like you and like me. Praise Him. Jesus' identity has been revealed. What we need to see here is the greatness of God's grace towards sinners. That's what this story highlights. The greatness of God's incredible grace towards you, towards me, towards sinners. Do you see that? Now Jesus is on a mission. That's why I said what John wants us to see is that Jesus is the Son of God who has come to do something. What's he come to do? To save sinners. 
That's his mission. And I can tell you we're going to go a little bit longer today because I want, to, I want to show you what Jesus came doing. And I want that to ignite your love for Jesus. And then I want to give us some practical application steps for how we can share the love of Jesus with others. All right? So you with me? Jesus was locked in on a mission to seek and save the lost. That's what's going on in this story. So let's look at his mission. Number one, he came crossing barriers. He came crossing barriers. He came crossing barriers. He, br- he crossed a barrier by going into Samaria. He crossed a barrier by interacting with a woman. He crossed a barrier by becoming unclean because she was immoral and even planning to share her water utensils. Jesus is a savior that crosses barriers to get you. Jesus took on, he's son of God, he took on humanity and crossed the barrier of actually becoming human because you needed a savior. Because you could never get to God on your own. Jesus had to come get you. And he crossed barriers to do it. The gospel is breaking down all barriers and welcoming everyone to Jesus. A Samaritan woman. This Jesus confronts the issues of sexism and racism like popular political ideologies never will. Jesus. Breaking down, crossing barriers. Breaking down every social construct, every class boundary, all forms of exclusion, reckoning everyone to Jesus. There's no one beyond the reach of Jesus' grace. There's no one beyond the need of it. This is why, church, we could be, we can be, if we would let it, Church could be, as Spurgeon referred to it, as the most beautiful place on earth. The dearest place on earth. A space where people come from all different walks, all different backgrounds, socioeconomic, different socioeconomic status, different skin color, different ethnicity. The church can be a place where even though there's diversity, we have this common denominator. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Name above all names. Worthy of all praise. The church, God's people, all united in Him. The kingdom of heaven includes all kinds, every kind, because no one is beyond the need of his grace and no one's beyond the reach of his grace. Friends, see the incredible grace of God towards you in the barriers he crossed to come get you. You were like the woman at the well. You weren't even thinking about it. You could have never gotten to God on your own. Jesus cut through Samaria to come get you. 
even the barrier of the self-sacrificing death on the cross. That's a barrier, right? Jesus asked the Lord if there was any way I could, this could pass. But if not, your will be done. Nothing was going to stop Jesus. Not even a humiliating death on the cross. Not even being separated from the Father that he loved is going to stop him from getting you. He's saying, I'm going to get her. I'm going to get him. And nothing's going to stop me. He came crossing barriers. Jesus came satisfying. He came satisfying. He came crossing barriers. He came satisfying. We see he offers living water. Are you guys with me? I feel this stuff, and I know it's going to be a little bit longer, but I, you guys need this stuff. You need to know Jesus. Nobody feeling me. Jim's saying, come on. Jesus came crossing barriers to get you, and he came satisfying sinners. Do you feel that? He came. The scriptures right here teach that Jesus is the source of the living water. He offers her living water. He's the source of that living water, but he also describes the nature of the living water that he offers. This is the language of D.A. Carson speaks of inner satisfaction. Jesus came to give you inner satisfaction. Formal religion will not provide inner satisfaction. He's saying we can exchange the failed formalism of religion for a heart that actually knows God, for a heart that actually experiences God, for a heart that actually loves God, for a heart that's sincere in its full-throttled pursuit of God. Because of all that he's done to satisfy our souls. You wouldn't have to work hard to tell this woman that her life was bankrupt. She knew it. She felt like she had a huge scarlet A on her, on her, on her jacket or what a dress at the well. Her life was bankrupt. Her life was terrible. It was depressing. It was lonely. But it didn't stop her from looking for happiness didn't stop her from looking for satisfaction. She tried it in five dudes. We don't know what happened. We don't know if they died. We don't know if they were divorced. We don't know. We don't know if they ditched her. We don't know. But every time she entered into another relationship that led towards marriage, I'll bet you she was thinking like all of us think, maybe this one will make me happy. They didn't because now she's on her six, but she's not even bothering to marry this dude. Why? Why do, why do we run? Why would she run over and over, make the same mistake over and over again? Like that's the definition of insanity, right? Doing the same thing over and over again and hoping for a different result. Five times. Now we're on the sixth. Why? Because she wants to be sinful. No. She wants what you want. She wants to be happy. She's just looking in the wrong place. She doesn't want to be sinful. 
She simply wants to find happiness. She's lonely, she's empty, and she's willing to grab at anything that might satisfy her thirst for happiness. You ever been there? Oh, guys, I'm sorry. I, I I, J. Ross always tells me, don't labor in pain in front of people. I'm going to skip a really good quote. I'll send it to you in the weekly email. All right, I'll read the quote. All right, well, you guys are, you guys are tempting me. Malcolm Muggeridge, he was a famous politician, famous in England. He says this, man, this captures being satisfied in Christ alone. Listen to what he says. I may, I suppose, regard myself or pass for being a relatively successful man. People occasionally stare at me in the streets. That's fame. I'm going to change the quote a little bit. I can fairly easily earn enough to qualify for the, for the higher tax brackets of the IRS. That's success. Furnished with money and a little fame, even the elderly, if they care to, may, may partake of trendy diversions. That's pleasure. It might happen once in a while that something I said or wrote was sufficiently heated for me to persuade myself that it represented a serious impact on our time. That's fulfillment. Yet I say to you, and I beg you to believe me, multiply these tiny triumphs by a million. Add them all together, and they are nothing, less than nothing, a positive impediment measured against one draft of that living water that Christ offers to the spiritually thirsty, irrespective of who or what they are. Some of you have drank of that. Some of you know that. Others, God wants you to drink of it, to be satisfied in Christ. If you drink the water of the world, What Jesus is saying in this passage is you're going to get thirsty again. This is the reality. This is the point. All that the world offers does not last. It doesn't last. It promises satisfaction, but it doesn't last. Some of you have tried it. Some of you have tried it more than others. But you know I'm speaking truth. You know God's speaking truth. The world can't satisfy you. If you drink of the Lord Jesus, you will never, ever, 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 ever thirst again. Friends, here is the good news of the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. You feeling it? Only Jesus satisfies human need. Only Jesus satisfies human want. Only Jesus satisfies, truly satisfies, eternally satisfies the void in every human heart. He came satisfying. He came seeking. He came seeking. Look at verse 23. The Father is seeking such people. He's seeking worshipers. Jesus came seeking. He came looking. He came intent to save Sinners and to turn them into worshipers, true worshipers. He came to get us where we were. 
He didn't expect to us, he didn't expect us to get to a certain place in order to meet him there. He came to you right where you were. He came to the woman right where she was. He didn't, she didn't, he didn't expect some kind of self-atonement plan. He didn't expect some kind of religious obedience. He didn't expect her to get on a moral improvement plan so that when he came back that way, he might be able to offer her what she deserved. He came for her in her undeserving state. And that's how he came for you. And that's how he came for you. That's how he came for us. He came seeking She wasn't seeking him. When people say they're seeking God or someone is seeking God, it's actually not true. Now, I know what people are saying, but the scripture says no one seeks God. They want God deep down, but it's so ironic. It's like you need God, you want God, you want to be eternally satisfied, but you spend your life running away from him. If someone is truly seeking God, it's because Jesus already ended up at the well. And he already opened your eyes and helped you to see him. Friends, see the greatness of God's incredible grace towards you in that he came seeking you. Jesus found you. You didn't find him. Can I give you a couple tips? Those that are the recipients of God's grace must declare his goodness to others. That's what we see in the Samaritan woman. Her life gets transformed and within minutes she's off serving as a witness to Jesus. She takes off running, forgets her water, come see a man. And she appears that she was successful because people come back. All right, I'll come see a man who told you everything you got. They, they, they come. They say, please stay with us. You, a Jewish rabbi, stay with us for two days. She was successful. There are few more attractive evangelists than someone who has just newly come to Christ. It's so true. They're, the people that have just come to Jesus are the ones that are bringing more people to church with them than people that have been following Jesus for 20 years. Now, it shouldn't be that way. But it is because they're so enthusiastic about what Christ has done. They're satisfied. They drank of this water and they want their friends to drink of it as too. Too. But listen, this woman, she didn't have any time to clean her act up. She didn't have any time to go back. She didn't even talk to the man she's living with yet. She hasn't done anything. She hasn't had a chance to be obedient to Jesus in any way, to clean her act up and then say, okay, now I can start telling people about Jesus. She just goes. Because it's not about what she has done. It's about what Jesus has done. So come see what Jesus has done. Not what I have done, what Christ has done. Don't look at me. Look at him. Don't look at me. Look at Jesus. The world needs us. Brandywine Grace Church, sit with me for a second and hear me say that the world needs us to make much of this Jesus who came satisfying, who came crossing barriers, who came seeking. What we want to do with our lives is make much of Jesus. That's what mission is. That's what evangelism is. So I want to give you some helpful hints for sharing your faith, and I'm going to do it in rapid speed. And Brandon, you can start to come up here, and we'll sing a song in response. I want to give you some quick 
helpful hints for sharing your faith, which we learn from Jesus, we learn from the Samaritan woman, and I have taken much of these from Bruce Milne, who, who wrote about some of these things. Relevance. Number one is relevance. Jesus is relevant. The whole conversation is couched in terms that she can understand. He spoke to Nicodemus. He spoke to the woman at the well. Two totally different people, but he's relevant with both of them. Christians should not be irrelevant. She's able to grasp what he's talking about. Think about the times that you have opportunity or you even think about sharing the gospel. Sometimes we share it in ways that people find irrelevant. They find it like, I, I, can't, I don't understand what they're saying. We should be relevant. Jesus is relevant. Look at his naturalness, naturalness too. Jesus is very natural with this woman. This is not a, it's, now it's a powerful interaction, but at no point does Jesus come off as odd or weird. Too many of you coming off as odd and weird. You pull on, I'm a Christian, and then people go, oh yeah, now it all makes sense, right? Now, now we should stand out from the world for our godliness, but not for our oddness, not for our weirdness, okay? Jesus is at ease with this woman, and she's at ease with him. That's how our conversations should be when we're making much of Jesus. You with me? Third, knowledge. Knowledge. Jesus has some knowledge of the finer cultural points of the Jewish Samaritan situation. He knows some things. He also knows his Bible. Now he's Jesus. But we should know our Bibles. We should be studying our Bibles. We should be reading our Bibles. Why? Because it will inform your making much of Jesus when you have opportunity to. He uses the scriptures. Fourth, look at his moral integrity and his directness. That's the word I'm looking for, directness. Somebody talked to me last week about, well, what do we have to do? Like, you, you talk to us a lot about Jesus, but how do you respond to Jesus? It does require a response. That's why he says, go get your husband. Uh, which one? There's going to need to be some change. There's going to need to be a response to Jesus. He exposes the whole truth about the woman, but he does it in the greatest, gentlest possible way. Some of us don't expose people's failures in a gentle way. Jesus exposes them very gently. Imagine someone exposing you at your worst. Some of you dread an encounter with God, but I want you to see the heart of God here in Jesus. Look at how he does it. His kindness, friend, is what leads people to repentance. It's what led you to repentance, and you need to keep that in mind when you're calling others to repentance. He's not offering easy believism. He just doesn't sweep the effects of her sin and the fall under the ground. There's going to need to be change, and my guess is she changed. There's new, new relationships, new behaviors, new sensitivities. Five, a positive presentation. Jesus' presentation is completely winsome. It's completely positive. Too often, too often I think when we share the gospel with people, it doesn't come across as good news. What Jesus shares actually sounds. If you said to that woman, does that sound like good news? Yeah, so much so that I forgot about my water. Sometimes we should ask people when we share the gospel with them, does that sound like good news? 
Because if they say, no, that sounds like terrible news, then say, okay, I messed up then. I messed up. Let me try again. Can I try again? It's a positive presentation. He takes pains to make sure she understands what he's offering, which is eternal satisfaction. Six. I'm giving you a lot, aren't you? You can go home and think on these. His refusal to be sidetracked. He refuses to be sidetracked. D.A. Carson, it's always easier to talk theology than to deal with truth that is personally distressing. You know, you're sharing, the faith, you're, you're, you're sharing the gospel with someone and they say, you know, I was thinking about how, you know, science and God and all that, and I don't know about that. Wait a second, we were just talking about your immoral lifestyle. Jesus isn't sidetracked. We can't be sidetracked by trivial, meaningless arguments. Why? Because there's little to be gained. Jesus doesn't even engage her on, where are we going to worship? Mount Gerizim or, or in Jerusalem? Jesus is saying, we're not going to gain anything through that argument. Listen, I'm telling you, you need me. You need Jesus. I could say a lot more there. True worship is measured by your attachment to Jesus, not to some particular temple, shrine, or political ideology. Seven, compassion. Through the entire conversation, Jesus deals with her as a person in her own right, with her own unique history, her own wants, her own needs, and she emerges in this account, in this account as a credible character with personal dignity because of the way Jesus treats her. Simply put, Jesus loved her. And I think many of our failures on mission and in evangelism are so often tied back to a failure to love somebody. It's a famous quote, right? People want to know that we care before they care about what we know. People want to know that we care before they care about what we know. Let me also say this. This may be, in John, the first example of cross-cultural global missions. Je Jesus is crossing a, cro it's a cross-cultural barrier. Jesus has called us as a church to be culture-crossing. All of these tips I just gave you, we got to make much of Jesus. But not just here, we should be making much of Jesus to the ends of the earth, to the unreached. This is why we sent the Goins out. This is why we sent the Hartzels to be equipped who will be returning shortly. Some of you may be called to go to cross cultural barriers. All of us, though, called to participate in God's plan to cross barriers to reach people that desperately need Jesus. You with me? Oh, I want to share one more thing, but I'm not going to do it because I've preached for a long time. Let me just end with this. Some truths are so fundamental. This is a football. Jesus Christ come from God to save sinners. Amen. Let's sing together.